Well, hello, my name is Dan Patterson, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in for this special message, which is trying to address many of the difficult questions that have come up because of the coronavirus crisis that we're facing all around the world. You might be tuning in today from being in lockdown in your home for weeks on end now, and are just wondering yourself how to process, how to make sense of our global situation. And so I want to give this special message, Christianity and COVID-19, questioning God to try and address some of these key questions as I've seen them raised online in the internet ether or raised personally from people who've been calling me and wondering about this. And, And the interesting thing about so many of these questions is they're being asked both by Christians on the inside of faith as well as by seculars or unbelievers or doubters on the outside of faith, because they are questions that come to all of us inescapably when we face the kind of mortality and fear and uncertainty that a situation like ours right now raises. And so speaking into these questions, let me maybe begin by two, what I would say are unhelpful responses in light of the present crisis. The first is the run towards atheism. Now, many people think that because of the amount of suffering that we're seeing on a global scale, that this is tantamount to absolute proof that a loving and all-powerful God cannot exist. This is almost an intuitive argument that I stumbled across as a youngster when my own mother was badly brain damaged in a car accident, when I gave up what I considered an infantile belief in God. It just didn't make sense that a loving God could exist with this kind of suffering. And so in my late childhood and teenage years, I ran away from belief in God, not really realizing that as soon as you eject God and the Christian story is a way of making sense of life's questions, you you have to fill that void of those deep questions with some other story, some other set of answers. And for me, it would have been some simple human Australian form of agnosticism or apatheism. I just don't really care about the God stuff. But there are many who were calling in the face of this crisis, as with many others in history, that Christianity should be doomed, that the church should close, that religion is coming to its end. Think of someone like, you know, the famous critic here in Australia, Peter Fitzsimmons, saying that this is going to be the end of religion. But I don't think that's a right kind of response. Let me give a couple of reasons. Uh, Number one, on the face of it, it actually doesn't do anything to fix the problem. Even if you get rid of God because of suffering, you still have the suffering. And all you've actually done in getting God out of the picture is actually eject with him, the baby with the bathwater perhaps, any kind of meaningful hope. You see, in an orphaned universe, an atheistic universe, where there is no heavenly father to us as earthly kids, then there is no, in the language of Richard Dawkins, ultimate sense of good and evil or justice. At bottom, this universe is amoral, uncaring, unsympathetic, which ultimately means that there is no hope, that death is some horrendous dead end that undoes the meaning of all of our collective lives and will one day wash us all away making everything we ever did equal to nothing in the cosmic scheme of things. 
Now, I don't think atheism is the right response purely on the face of it for that reason, but there's a deeper reason that I want to touch on. If you explore the pain and suffering in the philosophical literature, what you'll discover is that philosophers speak of two categories of evils. They'll speak of moral evils, the kind of evils that a human person does to another, and then they will speak of natural evils, the kind of suffering or pain that comes to us by virtue of being at the mercy of nature. Think of viruses and diseases and stillbirths and natural disasters, what these philosophers would call natural evils. But let's think about that term just for a minute, natural evil. Because if something is natural, if the universe is all that ever is, was, and ever shall be, then ultimately everything that happens is natural. Suffering is natural. It's the way things have always been, nature being read in tooth and claw, such that our history is written in the blood of countless generations before us. Death, disease, decay, and carnage. That's normal. That's natural. What sense does it make in light of that to call this evil? You see, evil almost has a moral tinge to a term like that. It's in a moral register. And when we experience the kind of things like what we're seeing right now and see these death toll rising, there is this deep, innate sense within us that something is wrong, that this is not the way that things should be, that this is not how we're meant to relate to nature or how we should ultimately end up. And that very deep intuition itself, I think, is testimony against the conclusion that we should run away from God in the face of suffering. Because as soon as you invoke a deep moral sense that something is good or evil, that there is a right way and a wrong way, that this is not the way that the world should be, you're all of a sudden starting to lean into the Christian story in a way that just doesn't fit an atheistic outlook. You're more Christian than you realize, which we'll come to in just a moment. But that's the first bad response, I would say, in the face of the crisis. The second unhelpful response is there are a lot of what N.T. Wright would call the silly suspects who are leaning into the idea that what's happening is karma. That when you look at the death toll, when you look at the lists of names, that the people that are being affected by this virus, whether physically in their sickness and death or economically, that they are getting their just desserts. That they have done bad, whether in this life or a previous life, and this is the way that karma is catching up to them. Now, many people in our enlightened Western world think that this is a reasonably healthy philosophy to adopt. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. But think about where this reasoning leads in terms of the diagnosis of a moment like right now. There are some tremendous human beings who have devoted their life to love and kindness who are finding themselves dying in hospital beds out of lack of medical attention or themselves just too susceptible to the disease, whilst there are horrendously evil people out there, murderers and pedophiles and abusers who themselves are being spared and are fine, locked away in their rich palaces. It just doesn't seem like karma makes sense of a situation like this. It can be an incredibly cruel doctrine to imprint onto someone else. Now, the challenge is there's also some Christian versions, as you'll hear it said on the Internet, that some people are saying this virus, like many other natural disasters before it, these are a specific judgment of God 
on certain civilizations or groups of people, that they have done something so bad that God is wanting to bring them to their knees and expose their evil or punish their evil by them being susceptible. And again, I think the same rule applies. Not only do I don't think that doesn't match the situation of people that we know deserve things more, but it actually doesn't match how Jesus speaks about evil. You might be surprised to learn that suffering and evil and pain are mega themes of the Christian story. If you read through from beginning to end, it doesn't gloss over these realities. There are entire books of the Bible devoted to trying to process these sorts of questions. But any Christian response should ultimately be shaped by how Jesus responds. You will not find Jesus looking at a person who is suffering and say, this is God's judgment on them. Instead, he tends to step in to heal that person. And when people specifically raise this sort of a karmic principle question, the principle of strict recompense in God's justice, Jesus says that's not how this works. In John chapter 9, his disciples come upon a man who was born blind, and they ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God be displayed in his life. You see, I don't think either atheism nor the karmic principle are the right way to think about what's happening right now. And as a Christian, I want to think much more clearly, much more deeply, and lean into the Christian story to see what resources we have for being able to make sense of our COVID-19 situation. And I want to suggest that when we come to the Christian story, out of the litany of things I could share, I want to share just five things that the Christian story offers us as a way forward through the mess. Number one, it offers us the genre, the pattern, the opportunity for lament. And people are asking me right now, now, Dan, if God, why the coronavirus? Why would God let the coronavirus happen? Why this virus? Why now? And my answer to that is, I have no idea. Christianity has a huge amount of room for mystery, that God is bigger than us. This is the entire story of Job. When he wants answers as to why he is specifically suffering, God turns up at the end of the story and asks him 64 questions to which he knows none of the answers, just so God can help Job realize, look, I'm bigger than you are. There are things that I know that you do not know. When I govern the universe, there's a whole lot that goes into that, that of which you are just simply unaware. The big question is, can you lean in and trust me? And so in in the absence of having the specific answers we may want to have as to why this and why now, we are invited in a world of pain and suffering to vocalize our reactions in lament. This is a rich tradition in the Christian scriptures. Think of Psalm 10.1, where King David says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or just Easter corn, think of Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is an entire book of the Old Testament devoted to people of God in the face of suffering and disorientation and uncertainty about the future, opening up with the register of all of their emotions, the full gamut of human experience, to cry out, Why, God? We don't understand. We can't see you right now. Things look dark and we can't see the dawn on the horizon. Where are you and why do you delay? 
the gift of this having such prominence in the Bible is that the Bible gives us permission to voice the strongest feelings available to us in deep protest against the pain and suffering of the world. We are given lament. Number two, we're given explanation. You see, the Bible isn't quiet when it comes to answers as to why there is suffering in general. In fact, it speaks to this deep intuition that we have that something has gone wrong. And it speaks to it powerfully, both in Genesis and in Revelation, at the bookends of the Bible, as to why a good and all-powerful God allows suffering. And namely, it's because he has a good reason to do it. You see, in Genesis, the Bible describes that God creates us in this world for good, that we were designed to bear God's image. And any world of meaning is a world of consequences. You see, God created things such that what you and I do, it it matters. What we do affects God and it affects each other and it affects the environment. Our choices matter. God gave us freedom to dignify our role to be in deep and meaningful relationships, capable of love, and for the role of being able to care for God's garden planet, to cultivate it, frame beauty, and to be able to move along the human project. The challenge is the same freedom that gave, made love possible, that made responsibility and all of these dignifying things possible, it also opens the door to negative consequences. You see, if humans trusted God's moral boundaries, that they would lead to our flourishing, if we went with the moral grain of God's design, and that would have been good for us. It would have resulted in good for the world. But because we went against the grain of God's moral design with our freedom, well, we got splintered. There were psychosocial splinters. The world itself was fractured. It's not God that walked off the job in being sovereign over the world. It is us that walked off the job as the ones who were given the responsibility to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and rule over it. And when we walked off the job, that's when the system was broken. And so the Bible says that because God wants meaning and love and purpose, all of the things that are wrapped up with freedom, this is why He created the world as he did, a cosmic theater of meaning where our choices have consequences. And sadly, the world is now not as God created it to be. We aren't relating to creation rightly because we are out of step with our creator and out of step with his creation. You know, viruses aren't necessarily a bad thing. See, in the natural world, if it wasn't for viruses, single-celled bacteria would have completely colonized up all of the natural resources available to us as higher, more complex life forms. We wouldn't be able to exist if good viruses didn't keep the bacteria in check. It's only when human beings relate to the natural world in a way in which we weren't intended, we weren't created for, that is where we've now become susceptible to harm, to suffering at the hands of nature. Human beings and our world are damaged by evil, or in the language of Romans, are under labor pains, affected by a curse, longing for the moment of their release. Now, you might be thinking, well, sure, God let it happen in the first place because freedom matters, but why doesn't he bring it to an end? Why doesn't he stop the suffering? And that's where we go to Revelation, because that's exactly what God says one day he will do. He will come to end, not just the moral evils, but the natural evils, to resurrect all of creation, to bring an end to evil. But to bring an end to evil means judgment. You see, it's not just the world out there that's damaged. It's not just structural systems in government or in politics or in our culture that are evil. It's actually 
in here. The heart of the human problem is the problem with the human heart. We are damaged by evil. That is Jesus's diagnosis, which means if God comes back now to get rid of all of the evil, he would have to get rid of us. This is why the Apostle Peter said that God is not slow in fulfilling his promise, as some understand slowness, but that he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, God isn't going to come back. Jesus isn't going to return to do that final judgment and bring the world into new creation, precisely because he is waiting. He is drawing, wanting as many people, perhaps even you listening to this, be able to turn from running away from God and run to him instead to find forgiveness for your evil and a changed heart to be made ready for God's future world. And so it's for these reasons, for freedom and for the future, that God does not intervene right now to bring an end to suffering. The third thing the story gives to us, though, is that it gives us a gospel. It gives us good news. And we've celebrated that just this Easter dawn. You see, if the secular story is true, if atheism is true, if this is an orphan universe, if there is no God, that means that Jesus did not rise from the dead, that his tomb is still occupied. But if that's the case, then everyone loses because it means that death is a dead end or a full stop in the sentence of reality. But the Bible says that Jesus of Nazareth, that God became human in Jesus, the invisible God made visible, eternal spirit made human flesh so that he could reveal to us what he's like, so that he could experience our suffering and our struggle and our temptation, so that he could, as a representative, bear the weight of our evil and absorb its punishment in his death on the cross. And then by his rising from the dead, defeat the very thing that ultimately holds us captive. Death, our greatest enemy, the terminal end of the sin sickness that we have. God promises to defeat this with Jesus's resurrection, such that what happened to Jesus 2000 years ago when he walked out of that tomb is a foretelling, a foretaste of what's going to happen in the future when everyone will be resurrected to face final judgment. And whosoever believed in him will not perish again, but will have eternal life. You see, Jesus demoted death on Easter Sunday, taking it from being a full stop in the sentence of reality, now just to being a comma. So that everyone right now who has died, or everyone right now watching who is afraid of death, you don't need to be. Because Jesus defeated death, and whoever believes in him will not perish. Do you believe this? This is the good news of the Christian story, the hope that it offers, that our death tolls will give way to empty tombs. The fourth thing that the Christian story gives us actually is a chart of how to navigate this present moment. You see, in 1 Peter and other places in the New Testament, they're the apostles. They speak about our present suffering as being something that God can use. Almost like him being this amazing blacksmith working in a forge to melt off all the impurities. We are refined through suffering. You see, our experiences, they bubble to the surface everything that's going on within us, such that we can either deal with it or be mastered by it. You see, suffering doesn't ultimately end in our good. It just provides a context, a heat, in which we have to learn to deal with our stuff, either in helpful ways or ways that will ultimately harm us. 
we can either cooperate with God or we can become bitter or angry towards God. You see, if becoming like Jesus, if eternal life with him, if looking like God is our final future reality for all who believe, then God is not going to waste these present opportunities to prepare us for that moment. He is wanting to transform us. This is why C.S. Lewis said, you know, that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so if you're a believer right now, then Romans 8.28 says that for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that God works all things for good. So I want to ask you, what is it God might be putting his finger on right now in your life? Something that needs to change. Maybe it's anxiety that's there and you're hoped in your economics rather than hoping in Jesus. And so he is led, as Jesus promised would happen, hard times come, difficult times, troubles, to be able to expose that your hope was in the wrong place and to reorient it. I've got a lot of people practically that are saying, damn, what should I do right now? I mean, a bunch of us don't have jobs anymore. And we're wondering, how do we get through this next season? Well, you know what? Just do what God calls us to do in the Gospels. You know, many people are waiting for a vision or a voice, for God to speak to them specifically when we ignore everything he says to us generally. What you should do right now in the midst of this present crisis is be the kind of people that Jesus was. Love people. Be generous towards others and the needs that are out there. Think about God. Think about others. Even before we think about ourselves. Don't be so focused on what you're going to eat tomorrow. God is going to watch over you. But yet also be wise. This is not a time for foolishness, but a time for following the kind of precepts and wisdom that God's laid out for us in the life of Jesus and his followers as they've been patterned following wise mentors and the advice and leaning into where able, following the advice of wise rulers that we should be praying for and caring for the sick and the weak and the vulnerable in our communities. These are the things that have always marked who Christians are. And in this time of intensified opportunity for change, that's what we should lean into. God, purify us through this experience to make us the kind of people we were always meant to be. It was the great Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard who said that life must be understood backwards from God's endgame, seeing where we're meant to be, therefore live forwards towards that. So anything that isn't helping you get here, get rid of it in this season. What a great opportunity to peel life back, find out what's most important and reset your rhythms as best as you're able to towards God. Fifth and final thing that the Christian story gives us is a sense of presence. Presence. God is not absent from our suffering. The whole message of Jesus of Nazareth was that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came for the spiritually sick. He came to set us free from sin and death and did so by absorbing our sin and paying our death. And if you want to know where God is in a situation like this, what melted my skepticism when I wrestled with these questions as someone who was on the outside of faith was seeing God hang on a cross. Jesus literally suffered excruciating pain, excrucis from the Latin, from the cross. 
Jesus knows what it is to bear our pain, to experience our fears, our anxieties, our struggles, our doubts, our questions. On the cross, God questioned God. Jesus knows what it is to wear all of this, which is precisely why in that final vision, he is able, having passed through suffering and through death into eternal life, he is why only one capable, qualified to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us, and he promised that he would never leave us or forsake us, that I will be with you always to the very ends of the age. God is with you, and he wants you to be with others. As weird as that might seem in our social distancing time, there is nothing stopping you being a couple of meters away from a neighbor, from being able to give your ear, your heart, your time, your prayers, from picking up a phone, from connecting on Zoom, from sending an old school letter by snail mail, by letting people know that they're in your thoughts and in your prayers, particularly those that are doing it tough. You can practice that presence, whether virtually or physically, to the best way possible to love those people around you. That's what Job's friends got right, where they sat with him in the dust for seven days without anyone saying anything. That's what Jesus did for us as he grieved with Lazarus's sisters in the aftermath. That's what you can do with people who are struggling right now. Just be present to be the hands and feet and heart and mouth and ears of God to others. Where do we wrap all of this up? Now is not a time to be running away from God. All that does is take away the hope. Our Christian story is packed with help and healing and hope and something to do in the meantime. And my deep prayer for you as you watch this is that you would lean in, reach out for God, be quiet and listen to him. And through this experience, perhaps become the kind of people that he always wanted you to be.